You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway. So good to see you. My name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here and the incredible privilege of opening God's word with you this morning so that we might hear him speak. Uh, Ryan uh, read our passage earlier in the service. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25 today as we continue our series in the book of Romans. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to pray and ask God to be with us as we look at this text, uh, which is so, uh, it feels like every week we open up Romans and we just see these passages that have the potential to transform our lives. And this is one of those texts. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would would use this time in a way that honors him and in a way that um, strengthens us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity that we have to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would give us an eagerness to hear your words to know that what you have said is the most important thing we could ever hear. Lord, we pray that as we take in what you have spoken, that our hearts would be filled with longing and with hope. Hope in the return and coming of Jesus Christ and all that that will usher in. Hope that as we await for his appearing, that you would help us to have the kind of expectation and anticipation that is worthy of you alone, you who are the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, you alone who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Lord, to you be honor and eternal dominion. We thank you that even as we pray that prayer, Lord, we know that through Jesus, we've seen you. That you have been made known to us through the person and work of your son. So we pray that our hearts would be drawn to those truths this morning, that we would be filled with hope and joy and anticipation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You and I are in desperate need of hope. I don't know if you know that or not. You probably have thought about certain moments where it felt like things were hopeless. It felt like things were bleak. And something shifted, some circumstance changed, some word was offered that provided an assurance and a sense of renewal that hope was not lost. And the reason that that provided that kind of assurance is because you and I need hope like we need air to breathe and water to drink. Without it, we will not be able to withstand the inevitable realities that are going to come to you and I. We're not going to be able to take it when we step into the doors of the funeral home and we look at a lifeless body in a casket 
And the feeling of numbness that that hits in our hearts gives way at the graveside to a cascade of tears. We're not going to make it without hope. We're not going to make it when we sit beside someone we love in a hospital room as a doctor tells them there's nothing more that we can do. And we watch them just crumble into sobbing and moaning and groaning. We won't make it. We're not going to make it without hope when we hear the sonographer say, I don't see a heartbeat. You won't make it. We need hope like we need the air that we breathe because without it, we can't withstand what's coming. Platitudes that are often well-meaning, they're meant to offer comfort, they fall flat and they can actually bring wounding and instead of healing. A wrong perspective on this reality can lead you to point a finger of accusation at the author of life itself. Because without hope, we're not going to make it. What this text shows us is that there's a hope. There is a hope that is going to overcome the suffering that you and I face. There's a hope that will overcome that suffering. What that hope's going to do is going to spill over into a life of anticipation where we are actually able to walk before our God with the knowledge that he is at work even in such pain and brokenness and longing. And so those are the two things we're going to think about together this morning, that there's a hope that overcomes our suffering. And there's a life of anticipation that God is inviting you and I to step into. And so let's look at this passage. We need to see what this hope is. We have to have it. Romans 8.18 builds on a context. Shay ended the sermon last week looking at Romans 8.16 and 17. These remarkable words. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, ouch, in order that we may be glorified with him. One of the beautiful realities of that passage is this truth of our adoption that we are brought into the family of God as his sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ. We have received an inheritance. And that inheritance is something that we cannot even really begin to understand, but which we are invited to consider and ponder. But there's also something else that comes with that inheritance, and that's suffering. Paul says that we are heirs provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. And what Pastor Shea finished his time with is this, this sober but profound truth is that suffering is the condition that must be met if we are to receive the glory of Jesus. Suffering is the condition that must be met if we are to receive the glory of Jesus. Suffering's going to come to every person. But the difference is that for the Christian, suffering is going somewhere very specific. 
And this is what Paul continues to expound upon in Romans 8, verse 18. He starts to show us that the place where suffering leads, when understood rightly, is hope. Look with me at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The very first part of this sentence I consider. When we look at the New Testament in its original Greek, we look at word order. Word order denotes emphasis and significance. And in this passage, the very first word in the sentence in Greek is this, I consider. It tells us that it is the most important concept that this passage is going to introduce, and that is of perspective. I consider, I see, I reckon, I understand. This is the most significant thing that's going to shape our understanding of suffering and the hope that there is for it. The commentator Charles Cranfield describes the meaning of this word in this context by saying it represents a firm conviction reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel. It is a perspective that is informed and grounded, not in subjective feeling, not in circumstantial well-being, but on objective truth, the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ the offer of the forgiveness of sins by faith in his name, the promise of eternal life with him, a glorious resurrected body. These truths shape the perspective that Paul begins to detail in this verse. I consider. This ought to make a lot of sense to us because we construct a narrative of all of our experiences as a way to understand their significance and purpose. You cannot help but do this. But what happens is that because we, apart from the gospel, often struggle with establishing a perspective based upon self-centered thinking, self-glorifying motivations, suffering then represents a kind of existential threat. It represents an existential threat to our well-being so that we can lose some things right? You can go through some things. But if we lose the thing to which we have placed our meaning and purpose and our identity, then we lose hope. This is something that is natural for the human heart to do. But I want you to notice how different Paul's perspective is. He says that, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Why? Why could he say such a thing? He can't mean that suffering isn't a big deal. He can't mean that. How do we know that? The scriptures are filled with descriptions of Paul's sufferings. This guy suffered. He walked through things that I would dare to guess that 99.8% of us have not experienced, at least in their totality. Let me give you some examples. At the beginning of the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says something astonishing to his readers. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened 
beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Later on in the same letter, he describes similar circumstances that he faced throughout his life. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11, that five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've I've only been on a ship three times. If that, and he says three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Paul knew suffering. He knew suffering circumstantially, but he also knew it relationally. The letter of 2 Timothy is so poignant at the end because he begins to detail some of his personal experiences to his young disciple, Timothy. He's writing from prison, and he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The end of my life has already begun. He bears his heart with his young brother, and he says that all of these people... They left me. He says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Only a few sentences later, he describes the kind of mistreatment he experienced at the hands of Alexander the coppersmith. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but everyone deserted me. Paul, who experienced such realities, things didn't get better. According to tradition, he was eventually put to death in Rome as a result of his witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, knowing the reality of what he has experienced, I consider that these things are not worth comparing. You and I also have sufferings that are often great. In addition to the examples mentioned at the beginning of our time, think of the things that you have walked through. Think of the diagnoses that you have either received or you have heard indirectly that change your life in a moment. Think of the mistreatment and the abuse that has come to you by the hands of other people whom you trusted, who manipulated, who disguised their true motivation so that they could hurt you for selfish gain. Think of the way in which your bondage to sin creates a sense of despair, a futility of brokenness. If you haven't felt these things, if you haven't experienced these realities, you will. And so like Paul, we have to have a way to understand how we are to see these. Paul says that our sufferings are not worth comparing. The great English pastor and scholar, John Stott, he says it in this way, it's not even that they're worth comparing, they must be contrasted. Contrasted with what? 
Paul was able to have hope as great as his suffering was because his framework, his way of understanding, his perspective was fixed upon something greater. It was fixed upon something greater. Look at the second part of verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That word revealed, it describes something that we already have a partial knowledge of. Something that we know, even if we're unable to name it, if we're unable to articulate its impact, its importance, its meaning. And this idea of glory in a general sense typically points to a kind of radiance and splendor and brightness and weight, the heaviness, its significance. It's used in many different ways generally in the scripture, but in this context, glory references something very specific. And it's this, the glory that was revealed when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. The glory that was revealed when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. What is this like? Luke 24 tells us something of the experiences of people as they came into contact with this glory. Two of Jesus' disciples, one of them was named Cleopas, the other is not named. They're walking along a road to a town called Emmaus. And a man appears to them. And they're talking and they're discussing together. And this man, whom the text identifies as Jesus, Jesus himself drew near and went with him. But the, but the text says in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you talking about? And they said, have you, have you not been paying attention? Or you, you don't know what's going on in Jerusalem? Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty, Indeed, in word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was going to be the one that redeemed Israel. And besides all of this, it's, it's the third day since these things happened. And some of the ladies that we walk with, they, they've said something that's almost unbelievable. They've said that they had a vision from angels who said that he was alive. And some of the people went and they went to the tomb and they found it just as these angels had said, but, but they didn't see it. And then this man begins to tell them why these things happened. And still their eyes are darkened. But in verse 28, something remarkable happens. It says that, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, Jesus, acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Come on. Then in verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us 
while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Why did their hearts burn? Their hearts burned because they came face to face with resurrection. Their hearts burned because they came face to face with glory. Paul is not talking about some generic concept. He's talking about the hope of every man and woman whose trust is in Jesus, that we would share in the same glory that Jesus himself received when he was raised from the dead. It's this our own resurrection from the dead that Paul presents as the hope that overcomes the sufferings that we will face in this life. Our resurrection from the dead is the hope that overcomes our suffering. Now, if you're like me, you may have been raised, maybe you were raised in the church, maybe you weren't, but you may have been taught a perspective that sounds something like this. You need to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins so that when you die, you can go to heaven and be with him. That's true, but it's incomplete. It's not the entire story that the New Testament presents to us. The story that the New Testament presents to us is that we are compelled to turn from our sins and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not only for the forgiveness of our sins, for salvation in this life and the promise of it in the next, for the sanctifica sanctification, increasing transformation that we will know, but that all of that is pointing towards a day when Jesus comes back and undoes every effect that the corruption of sin has produced in my life and in your life and in the created world. And when he comes back, we will be raised like him. There is something beyond our imagination and understanding that awaits us, that has the power to transform our perspective. And it is that you and I will not die, but we will live. Now, we may die. but we will be raised. That's the hope that has the power to overcome our suffering. And in fact, it's what Paul reiterates again and again as the ultimate goal of his life. Philippians 3, he says this. He says that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I'll do whatever it takes so that I might know life, physical, glorious life. This is the only thing that could possibly stand in contrast to our present suffering. The only thing that could actually render it as nothing in the eyes of the apostle. Everything else would crumble under the weight of the power of death. The only thing stronger is life. Life that is more powerful than death. This is the hope that Paul introduces and says, 
my sufferings compared to that, it's not even a question. So great is this hope that its promise has touched all of creation. And this is what he begins to detail in verses 19 through 22. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's that word again, hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul uses this really remarkable poetic image to highlight the significance of our future hope. Because typically we say, I can't wait for the world to be made new again. But Paul says it's actually the other way around. Creation is waiting for you to be made new again. Its hope is in that reality that we would be resurrected and transformed. Why would creation have this perspective? Scripture teaches us that not only has sin affected every human life, it has marked creation as well. It has fractured God's world, and it has kept it from functioning the way God intended it to function. All is not as it is, was supposed to be. Sometimes we miss this because there's still a lot of splendor and beauty in the natural world, but it is also marked by death and decay and desolation and destruction. And this is because creation suffers under the curse the same way that humans do. Creation experiences the same kind of corruption. But what this text is helping us to see is that we are the focus of God's redemptive work but that that work is so powerful that it too will lead to the restoration of the created world as well. It's going to spill over and it's going to touch everything. The undoing of sin's corruptions in my life and in your life is going to give way to the undoing of sin's corruption on creation. And what's really remarkable the language that is used in this passage, this undoing is the very thing creation is described as longing. It's on tiptoe. It's craning its neck to see what is it that's going to come? What is the hope that will be revealed in God's image bearers? And when will that hope bring our own restoration as well? Creation is groaning for it. It's a hope that has not yet been attained. And as Pastor Shea talked about last week, we are in this already but not yet reality. There is a huge part of this that has already begun to break into the present. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, one author says, eternity broke in and it began to have an effect on everything, but it is not yet what it will be. We are saved by grace. We are given new lives by the Spirit. We have received the Spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, but we are waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of what God has promised, and creation is in the same stage of waiting. But notice the image in verse 22. It's deeper than just waiting. Creation is groaning. 
Older translations say creation travails, which is a word that describes the pain of childbirth. Creation is crying out in pain, but not without purpose, not without a promise. Paul appeals to creation in this way because he wants you and I to understand that the hope of life from the dead, of the glory of the children of God, is the hope of all creation. It's the thing that creation itself longs for. So up to this point, what we've seen is this hope. There is a hope that overcomes our suffering, and it is that our suffering is going to give way to the glory of our resurrection. There's a hope. But this is to spill over. This is to deeply affect you and I such that our lives represent a a kind of anticipation, a kind of longing ourselves for that day and what it will represent. So there's a hope, but there's also a life of anticipation. And this is what we start to see in verse 23. Look with me. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul now returns to describing the experience of the Christian as we suffer. What is it that our life looks like? And it looks like this. We groan just as creation does. We look at our state. We look at our experiences in the midst of hardship and difficulty. And we rightly say, something isn't right here. I don't need to have the evidential proof laid in front of me. I know it deep in my soul that something is wrong. Something is not the way that it is supposed to be. Now that a person would acknowledge the brokenness of this world is not exactly a unique Christian concept, but that we would groan for our adoption, as this text describes is something that's only possible because of the spirit who dwells in us. This passage is so similar to another text in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, where Paul describes the giving of the spirit in response to our belief in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, starting in verse 11, he says this. He says, in him, we have an an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his to the praise of his glory. It is only the believer in Christ that can groan inwardly in the way that this text describes. It is only because we ourselves have received the first fruits of the Spirit, a word that is very similar to the word guarantee, which means the down payment, 
the promise that what God began, he will complete. It is that reality, he who dwells within us, that enables us to look at our situation to say, this is not right, something is wrong here, and to groan with deep, deep, profound pain, but purpose to say that something else is coming. What is that something? Paul makes it very explicit. If we haven't picked up on it at this point, he says it with with extreme clarity. As we wait eagerly, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, so you may be thinking, well, last week we talked about our adoption, but it was described as a present tense reality. And here, Paul seems to be looking towards a future and saying that that's not what we have yet. And it's because our adoption is something that we receive now, but something that will come in its ultimate fulfillment on that day. We will be fully restored. We will be fully resurrected. We will be fully alive, freed from the presence of sin. Any effect that could ever be felt will no longer be ours, and we will live in eternity as God's children, delighting in the presence and love of our Father. Paul is trying to help us see that this is the life to which Christians are called. He says it in really significant ways truth. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Verse 24, this is what you were saved for. This is the hope that marks the culmination of your salvation. About two and a half years ago, one of my friends died suddenly, and he left behind a young wife, two-year-old son, and a baby girl in the womb. And among the group of friends that was closely connected with this family, he was the first to to pass away. And I sat and I listened to his wife at his funeral preach the gospel and talk about where he was now. And I had been up to that point less emotionally affected because I was, I think, probably seeking to be strong for my wife who was suffering in this. But at that moment, you know, it was over. I broke and it was just weeping and, um, and sorrow. Later that same day, we went to the graveside and it was a beautiful, sunny day. Um, we were down at the coast, so even though it was November, it was like 80 outside, which of course today we're experiencing something similar. But I heard the pastor say something I don't think I'll ever forget when his casket was being prepared to lower into the ground. He said that, What's going into the ground right now is a seed. And it's a seed that is sown that one day God will raise. This is the hope that marks our salvation. This is the hope that drives us to say, 
It's not worth comparing with what's to come. But it's also the hope that makes it okay for us to groan and to weep and to mourn and to lament. It's not without purpose. Jesus says something amazing in John 12, 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul says something along the same lines in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, I don't exactly know how we all reconcile that. Because you might be sitting here and you might be in the midst of one of those experiences where you are currently facing the kind of suffering that says, where is my hope? You may be groaning in this moment for a day to be different. But what Paul has showed us is that because his hope was fixed on something greater, and so great must that thing be if it outweighs the pain of what we experience today, but his hope was fixed on something greater, and as a result, he could anticipate that life and do something remarkable, which is what the rest of our passage tells us. He could live in light of such loss because of the glory that was coming. Romans 28, 24, the second part of this, he says, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The verb wait here is the same verb that's used in verses 19 and 23 to, to describe eagerly wait. I'm not sure why it doesn't say that here in the ESV, but it's, it's the same word. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait eagerly for it with patience. What Paul wants us to see is that we are to walk in anticipation of everything that Jesus is going to do when he returns and when we are made like him. How are we to live? In anticipation of our coming glory that will be revealed when Jesus returns. This theme runs through the entirety of the New Testament. Paul describes this elsewhere in Colossians 3 because he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And notice the connection that Paul now makes to our lives today. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. That sounds familiar to the first part of Romans 8, doesn't it? If you put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, you will live. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for you and I today? I think at least it means four things. It really probably means more like 400 things. We just don't have time to go through all of them. But first, it means that we must seek to fix our hope in the same place where Paul's hope was fixed, the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's an interesting translation note. The glory that is to be revealed to us could just as rightly be translated the glory that is to be revealed in us. 
There's some debate about what those words mean, but I think it's probably best to, to note that they mean both. We're going to see that glory, but it's going to be revealed in us, and we must fix our hope there. This doesn't deny the reality of suffering, the pain of this world. Paul has never in this text said that that doesn't mean you don't groan and cry out and weep and express the sorrow that you're facing, but it means that in the same breath, you fix your hope on the day when Jesus comes back and undoes all of it. And instead of death, there is life. Second, we pray for protection against a kind of earthly mindset that is so easily influenced by our suffering. When we suffer, it has the power either to pull us closer to God or we can allow it to push ourselves away from God. We have to pray that God would protect us from that kind of thinking so that our own lives would not become a justification in response to the hurts and the sorrows and the pain that we've experienced. Third, we can seek to endure suffering. We can endure it knowing that by the Holy Spirit, we really can consider our sufferings as inconsequential when compared to the glory that awaits us. I've said this, others have said this, that many times it is those who have suffered the most who possess a kind of joy that can't be shaken because they have come to know the truth that if you have everything stripped away from you except for Jesus, you still have Jesus. And if you have him, you're not lacking anything. Sometimes it's God's kindness to actually pull some things away from our lives so that we would see the surpassing hope of him in opposition to the things that we would elevate as deeper priorities. And then we can know that this hope that we have talked about this morning, this hope that will overcome our suffering, we can know it. We can know it as, as deeply as we know anything that that hope is going to overwhelm our suffering as our suffering gives way to glory. And so we've seen in this text how there is a hope and there's a life that we're called to step into that's marked by anticipation. And what we're gonna do now, just like we do every time we gather, is we're gonna respond. We're gonna tell the Lord, thank you. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for the assurance that just as my sins have been forgiven by the death of Christ, so too is my future secured by his resurrection. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together as a church, I wanna give you a little bit of framing to understand how we're going to do this. This meal that Jesus instituted the night before he went to the cross, where he sat and shared the Passover meal with his disciples, but transformed it. This meal is something that is to be celebrated by, by believers in Jesus Christ. If you're here visiting with us, you would not identify with Christ. You hear what I'm saying and it sounds so foreign that you look at your life and say, I must not be a Christian because if this is the hope, then I don't know what that is. I don't have that. Let this meal be something you observe, but from which you abstain. 
And for you who are believers, as we take these elements, let Paul's words sink in in understanding the significance of what we are doing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Paul is saying is that every time you come to the table, every time you take the elements, you remember Jesus' death and you remember his return. You remember the day that will usher in the kind of glory that we have discussed this morning. And we wait for it. And we say, Lord, come soon. Let us live in light of your eternity. Let us live in light of your glory. Let us walk beside you just like the disciples on the Emmaus road, but let us see with clarity who you are. That's only possible when you come. And so what the scriptures teach us is that Jesus sat with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and he took that bread. And instead of the bread of affliction that represented the sufferings of the people of Israel, he said, this bread is my body that is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. So we take and eat the body of Christ. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. So we take and drink the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of these words. And we pray that you would use them for your glory to strengthen us in the hope that we await. We pray that that groaning that we experience would actually be a mark of hope because we know that it comes from you. That it's something that has a purpose and has a destination. I pray that as we endure sufferings today in this life, that you would help us to have hope that goes far beyond simply the resolution of a circumstance, but rather the undoing of all of the effects of sin's corruption in our lives and in the world around us. Help us to be men and women who are fixed upon that hope. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen.